All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we're joined by Dr. Kent Vlight, the coordinator of the biology research labs at the University of Florida. Kent, thank you for coming on to the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So uh, what first got you uh, started in your career with reptiles and uh, how have you... <clears throat> Have how you how have you gotten into uh, the position you're at now? So I started like a lot of little boys. I started catching snakes and lizards <coughs> um, around my house, or when I was away on vacation someplace. But uh, unlike a lot of people, I grew up in a university town and. Um, because I had a pretty active interest in reptiles when I was young, I, I had done a lot of reading and I knew a lot of natural history. Uh, and uh, because my dad was associated with the university, it just turned out one, one day I was um, in, a, in a car with the ex-president of the university, this University of Oklahoma. And I was, we were just chit-chatting, but he realized that I knew quite a bit of, of biology and especially knew a lot of natural history about reptiles. And so he arranged for me to start working at the Department of Zoology there. I was still in junior high. I was 14 years old. Uh, so I started working in research labs there at the, in the Department of Zoology at the University of Oklahoma and um, eventually I, I started, uh, I was studying uh, physiology of some desert lizards at the time, uh, helping a grad student. And uh, eventually I started working for another faculty member in the department that uh, is, is uh, he's gone now, but he was, uh, uh, instrumental in our understanding of some of the social displays that iguanid lizards use, the head bobs and push-up displays that uh, things like anoles uh, use. He had studied all of those for many years. And so I started working in his lab studying behavior. And, uh, and I did that. I ended up going to the University of Oklahoma for my undergraduate and uh, and then I was going to go on for a master's and a, and a PhD someplace. And I came to Florida to work with a fellow named Walter Offenberg, who was at the time the curator of herpetology at the Florida Museum of Natural History. He's best known for his studies of behavioral ecology of Komodo dragons. And so he, he'd done, done a lot with other reptiles, but he was really a monitor guy. And uh, so I went, came down here to Florida to work with him. And um, he, when I got here, he was just coming back from spending a couple of weeks um, watching alligators uh, uh, courting at the St. Augustine alligator farm. And so he gave me the notes that he had taken from, from that little trip, and I analyzed those and got kind of hooked on that. And so uh, the next, next courtship season, we went over there and uh, uh, to study courtship. But before that, I had to go and catch all these animals and, 
and weigh and measure and sex them and put big tags on their tails so that I could uh, recognize individuals. And I tell you, as soon as I started catching alligators and feeling the fight in those things and figuring out how to wrangle them, I was hooked. And um, that was a, that was a long time ago. That was uh, uh, more than forty years ago. And um, I've really done little but work with alligators and crocodiles since then. All right. So. Uh... Uh, what is your current job and what's like the job description of what you have at the moment? So I don't work with alligators on a daily basis in my job. Over the years, uh, you know, we all teach at the university. And over the years, um, my teaching kind of turned into more administration of the courses that we teach. And so um, once you go into administration, they keep kind of piling things on you and it just becomes more and more and more administrative work. And so now I, I do almost nothing but administration. I'm responsible for all the teaching laboratories uh, in the Department of Biology. Um, and the uh, University of Florida is a pretty big school. I mean, you have some big schools up there too, but um, in just the introductory biology labs, we typically have 1,800 students a semester in those labs. And, and so I have to, uh, I have to uh, get all the TAs oriented to teaching what they're going to teach. I make all the TA assignments. I manage all the lab staff for all the teaching labs there. I, I oversee all the budgets and, and all of that. So it's very administrative. I, I rarely teach anymore um, because I don't have time for it. I'm, I'm overseeing everything that's going on. How do you like, um, how would you describe the difference between like um, a teaching career and then like field work and like, um, which one do you prefer more and, and why? I've always enjoyed teaching. My, my father was a, a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. And I remember as a kid going to sit in the back of his classroom one time. And oh my God, I couldn't imagine a more boring time that, that I'd had there. So I didn't have a very uh, positive uh, impression of teaching when I first went to the to Florida here and as a grad student. Um, but the second I started teaching, I really loved it uh, be, because there's lots of reasons I love it. Uh, there's not a lot of jobs that you have that you have such immediate feedback uh, on what you're doing and that you can really see if you're making a positive impact or a negative impact on on students. And, uh, and I enjoy that. And over the years, uh, the thing I've, I've really enjoyed is that um, every semester, there's a new batch of students, a new bunch of faces, a new 
people to meet and learn their stories. And so it, it really keeps you going, just the, the constant uh, ebb and flow of students that are coming through the university. So I enjoy that. I enjoy field work also. As I've gotten older, I'm not as good at it anymore. And, um, and so I guess I'm lucky I have an office job to go to uh, most of the time because uh, I'm just, um, just not that good in the field as I've gotten old. So, uh, so what was some, well, some of your uh, most, well, well, some of the biggest uh, researched uh, projects you've worked on? So I've worked on a lot of different aspects of, of alligator uh, biology. And uh, because I do a lot of work with captive crocodilians, and we have a lot of captive crocodilians in Florida, I've worked with, with essentially all of the living species of crocodilians. I began my work studying uh, behavior, social behavior, social displays, courtship uh, behavior. Uh, but um, as, as my job became more administrative, I had less time to work with with alligators and or or to devote to crocodilians, and so I began doing a lot of collaborative work with many different people. And so I've done work on on diseases of of um, of alligators. Um, I described. A, parasite that you find in their lungs at one point. Um, uh, I've studied um, uh, stress hormones uh, on alligators, capture stress and its impact on reproductive hormone levels, that sort of thing. <coughs> Excuse me. I um, I've done some anatomy work with them. Um, I've, um, uh, lately I've been, uh, working with some people looking at proteins that you find in their blood, uh, that, that are part of their innate immune system. So, um, this seems to be fairly widespread among reptiles. We, we started with alligators. We looked at some other species of, of crocodilians. We've looked at Komodo dragons. Now we're working with boas as well. But what we're doing is isolating these little tiny proteins in their blood plasma that are called uh, antimicrobial peptides. And, uh, and that just means that these are peptides that <clears throat> when there's a, a microbe or some infectious agent in them, the, these microbes will, will attack attack those, they'll attach to them and, and cause the immune system to break those cells down. It's one of the reasons why these animals get so few infections. They're, they're actually quite tough. They have really remarkable uh, immune systems. Um, so we've been working on this uh, for a number of years. And when, when we began it, I didn't really think there would likely be an therapeutic uh, aspect to this but I, I don't believe that anymore we're we're beginning to uh, 
uh, look at wound healing when you apply these these antimicrobial peptides. And um, you know, I think it, it's ultimately going to have applications as uh, anti antibiotic therapy in humans, probably um, uh, accelerating wound healing. Um, most of the money for this work has come from the Department of Defense, and they're clearly interested in in wound healing. And so we've been focusing a lot on that uh, recently. So I've done a lot of different things over the years. Uh, past few years, we've been working on what we call cryptic species of crocodilians. So, um, for instance, uh, in in Africa, um, 15 years ago, if you asked how many species of crocodilians there were in Africa, we would have said three. But we now know that uh, there's actually seven, at least, there. The Nile croc was actually two separate species. The slender-snouted crocodile is two separate species. The little dwarf crocodile is actually three species. They look quite similar to one another. In fact, they're frustratingly similar because part of the job is we have to figure out how to distinguish them by their, by their morphology. We recognize these differences initially by taking blood and doing molecular analyses on them, basically sequencing their DNA and uh, and we can recognize differences in their DNA, and that's how we recognize these species are, are not the same thing spread over a wide range. They're actually two or three species taking up portions of that range that we always attributed to them. So that's interesting work. So um, I'm, I know I've heard about the African dwarf croc being broken into two different species. I didn't know about the third one. Uh, what was that like? Uh, can you describe more about that third species recently broken off? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the first thing, the first one we recognized was um, uh, the Nile crocodile, which you know basically has a. We used to believe the range of it was essentially sub-Saharan Africa in any parts of Africa that were wet enough to support a crocodile. And they also occurred on Madagascar. And so there was a biologist, uh, is a biologist named Yvonne Hekala with the American Museum of Natural History. And when she was doing her uh, PhD work, she decided to go to Madagascar and sample blood from those crocodiles and then sample Nile crocodiles throughout South Africa and East Africa and Central and West Africa with the idea that the ones on Madagascar might be a different species because they're isolated, at least they're somewhat isolated. Uh, and when she made those, got those results, um, she found out that the Nile crocodiles on Madagascar were just like the ones in East Africa or South Africa but that the Nile croc she had sampled in West Africa, in places like um, the Ivory Coast, uh, uh, were completely different animals. 
and it just so happens that I had been I had been collecting blood samples from captive crocs for quite a, a long time. I work very closely with the St. Augustine Alligator Farm in St. Augustine, Florida, which has essentially the most complete crocodilian collection in the world and has for the past few decades. And um, I have a close relationship with them. So I've been able to work there uh, for many years. The San Diego, uh, uh, zoological society um, has a project, uh, a, a well-funded long-term project called the Frozen Zoo, which basically started with mammals and birds um, collecting skin samples and then culturing the skin cells and, uh, and culturing them on plates in the laboratory and basically turning these into what are called immortal cell lines. So, uh, so you can uh, grow these cells up and then they freeze them in liquid nitrogen and keep them frozen. And, but then they, they have the ability to thaw them out and get these cells to regrow. And so what you basically have are, are uh, complete stores of that species DNA frozen in the laboratory. And, uh, and as I say, they've been doing this for a long time. I don't know how many species they have, but it's a lot. They have maybe 1,500 or, or more species there. So years ago, I had uh, told them that I would provide the tissues for crocodilians, and I'd been sending those to them. And this was actually before Yvonne uh, published her work on identifying this new species of croc, which we now call the um, West African crocodile. It's Crocodilus sucus. Um, I, we had animals in our collections that we knew were somewhat different from Nile crocs, and we, we referred to them as West African Nile crocs, just among, among the hobbyists, you know. But I, I uh, had collected tissues from those as well as Nile crocs and submitted them. And uh, one of the things they do when they create these uh, cell lines in the lab is they'll freeze them for a while and then they'll pull a sample out and thaw them out and they do a karyotype. I don't know if you guys know what that means, but it's, it's, uh, it's basically they rupture the cells and collect and stain the chromosomes, and um, and that way they could they could tell if the cells were were proper that they weren't wonky, you know, that they had all the chromosomes they were supposed to, and, and they looked like healthy cells. Anyway, so they were producing these beautiful karyotypes just as a part of their work, and they were sending karyotypes to me. And, uh, and we realized um, relatively quickly that uh, the West, what, what we were calling West African Nile crocs, actually had more chromosomes in each cell than the Nile croc did. Even though they looked more or less like the same thing, they, they actually had an extra pair of chromosomes. So that was the first indication to me that we were really dealing with something different. 
and then Ivana Ivan Heckler's uh, work came along, and and that got us going. Uh, and um, uh, then there was uh, a fellow named, named Mitch Eaton that was working with um, uh, dwarf crocodiles. There's a, you know, there's a, a big um, potentially uh, serious conservation problem in Central and West Africa with, um, with people eating bushmeat. And people go out and hunt wild animals and bring them into the villages or towns. And they have open air markets there and they sell hunks of meat off those things. And so Mitch spent a lot of time traveling around Central and West Africa, just collecting tissues from the animals in these bushmeat markets. And that, that was part of how he came to the realization that those dwarf crocodiles were different. And so in both of those cases, the case with the Nile croc and the, in the West African croc, and then these three species of dwarf crocs, there were clear geographic uh, features that separated the, those croc populations from one another. And from an evolutionary standpoint, that made sense that they were being isolated by, by zoogeographic uh, features. And so they were diverging from one another. And so one of my colleagues and I who had been working on, on these things um, said, well, if these, if these two species of crocs have separated, probably the, we ought to look at the slender-snouted crocs as well because they're living in that same region. And so he, he works in West Africa a lot. So he started taking uh, samples from these slender-snouted crocs and we were doing molecular analyses on those and it turns out those were distinct as well. So we're not sure we have all the diversity identified there yet, but we have we have a lot more than we did a few years ago. Is there still crossbreeding going on or are they still separated uh, physically? <clears throat> They're still separated physically. Um, we're not really sure if they're reproductively isolated from one another. You know, that's one of the kind of the central tenets of, of most people's understanding of the species concept mm -hmm. is that species can't interbreed. Um, crocodilians didn't get that message. They, <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, you know, the, the reason species typically can't interbreed is that they have diverged genetically enough that they, the, you know, like the chromosomes no longer mesh properly during fertilization. And, and so that, that divergence is due to adaptation and, and mutation and, and just genetic divergence. And, and crocodilians do everything slowly. So even if they've been separate for a few million years, they haven't diverged, I think, mm. so much. Uh, anyway, uh, we know there's a, a, a lot of crocodiles that are capable of interbreeding with other species of crocodiles and producing viable young. 
So this now, for instance, um, is a is a huge conservation problem for um, Cuban crocodiles. There's a, a species of crocodile that is, is found only in Cuba. Uh, at least now, it used to be found more widely. You know, several hundred years ago. Um, it's a fantastic crocodile. It's called the Cuban croc, Crocodilus rhombifer. Uh, um, spectacular animal. It was already in, in danger because it has the smallest range of any New World crocodile. It's only found in a couple of small swamps on, on uh, the south side of, of the main island of Cuba and then another swamp on an island off the coast. Um, but for the past 50 or 60 years, uh, American crocodiles have been invading those swamps because Cuban fishermen dug canals from the coastline into the interior to those swamps so they could get their boats in to fish. And so American crocs have just come up those canals and they're interbreeding with Cuban crocs, so the two two species of crocs that are interbreeding, and uh, and it's pretty rampant. And um, there's there's not that many Cuban crocs left anyway. And now probably at least seventy percent of them in the wild are actually hybrids uh, between American crocs and, and Cuban crocs, or they're their interbreeds where they've crossed back with one of the parental species, they're, they're pretty messed up genetically. And so it's very likely within the next 20 or 30 years that that species will be, as a distinct species, will be extinct in the wild just because it's been swamped by the American croc. The same species, American crocs, also interbreed with Moralette's croc in Central America. Um, so, and uh, and in captivity, um, Nile crocs have been known to interbreed with many, uh, many of those species, plus Siamese crocodiles, and so a lot of the genus Crocodilus seems to have not. Uh, evolve these reproductive isolating mechanisms that we tend to think of when we think of, of good species. That's really cool. Is there, um, so from a con conservation perspective with the American crocodile or alligator in the, uh, in the or the American crocodile and the Cuban croc, um, do you do anything to, um, to prevent that or do you let nature run its course or what? So we try to prevent it. There's very little you can do uh, in the field itself. What we've been trying to do is, is uh, protect the genetic resource of pure Cuban crocodiles. And the Cubans were doing this long before we stepped in. And, and uh, you know, we went in with our American flags flying and, uh, and to, to show them how to do good croc biology and they'd been doing it for 25 or 30 years and ended up teaching us a lot uh but um so they didn't when they first started working with their crocodiles they didn't understand that this was a problem 
So they had caught a bunch of crocs and brought them into farms to, you know, to grow them up for, for meat and for tourist curios and that sort of thing. And they didn't recognize that Cuban crocs and the American crocs are different. So they had kept them all together for a long time. And, um, and once they got the message that the Cuban crock was something unique to Cuba, they went in and, uh, and pulled as many of what they believed to be pure Cuban crocodiles out of that group and isolated them. And, um, and we also brought some animals from, uh, from the Havana Zoo uh, and we'd had animals in zoos in Europe and the U.S. previously. So we have a nucleus of, uh, and we've gone back and tested all these animals uh, numerous times. So we're confident that the this captive uh, group of Cuban crocodiles we have in Europe and the United States is a good nucleus of, of pure Cubans. There are pure Cubans in captivity in in uh, uh, in Cuba, but in the wild, as it stands now, um, they're they're just slowly being swamped by American crocs. To make matters worse, there's a huge amount uh, in just the past uh, ten or fifteen years. There's been a, a real onslaught of poaching of crocodiles there. Cuban economy is in poor shape. And so people are doing whatever they can to survive. And so these guys are going out in the swamp and killing crocodiles so they can sell meat to their neighbors. Um, unfortunately, they've got it in their head that Cuban, pure Cuban crocs taste better than American crocs or the hybrids do. And so they selectively kill the ones that we want to want to protect the most. And uh, it's just a horrible situation. We got some interesting news just recently on our captive population. We had done yet another genetic um, analysis of our captive animals. Now we finally, thanks to the work we've been doing for many years with Cubans, um, with the Cuban croc biologists, we finally managed to be able to bring genetic samples out of Cuba and analyze them in labs here in the U.S. And, and a fairly large number of samples from Cuba, so several hundred. Our captive populations, I don't know, uh, I forget, it's probably um, 75 or something like that. Anyway, we've analyzed all of those in the same lab with the exact same lab tests. And, uh, and not only are our Cubans pure Cubans, but we've identified five unique, uh, we call them haplotypes, just, just variations in the mitochondrial genes five unique ones that we haven't seen in the in the wild crocs in Cuba, meaning those haplotypes, we may be, we haven't sampled everything in Cuba. They could be there, but we haven't found them. And so that means it's possible they've been lost already due to the loss mm -hmm. of, of animals from the population. So now we're making extra 
sure that that we're reproducing the animals that carry those genes in our captive population just to make sure we maintain that unique genetic contribution so that hopefully we can take it back to Cuba at some point in the future. Um, so I'd actually want to go back to the, um, when you're talking about the, the blood um, pe uh, peptides, is that something that's unique to reptiles? Um, have anyone's looked at other species or animals? Yeah. It's not unique. Uh, humans have antimicrobial peptides in their blood. They don't have nearly as many as reptiles do. And we're, we're only just beginning to, to really understand these things. So we had, there's a fellow at McNeese State University in Louisiana named Mark Merchant, and uh, he's a biochemist, but he's, he's, He's a fan of alligators. And so um, he has done a lot of work on alligators. I've worked a bit with him. Uh, but he first began working with just uh, blood plasma from alligators. And he would grow out different cultures of bacteria. Say he maybe would have, uh, you know, whatever, 24 species of bacteria growing on in petri dishes and he would just take one drop of blood plasma and drop it in the center of each one of those plates and what he would find in in many of the cases with those bacteria is that it would kill the bacteria that it had come in contact with so there'd be a clear ring in the center of the plate that he dropped that on so he he did that with bacteria he's done it with viruses in, including uh, HIV. Uh, he's done it with uh, different species of amoebas. Um, so it looks like there are components in the blood of alligators that can kill almost any of the pathogens that they're exposed to. So and, what? Then, and then he and I did the same thing. <coughs> Sorry, got something in my throat tonight did the same thing with all the living species of crocodilians, and they all do the same thing. They don't do it exactly the same way. They're actually kind of taxonomic patterns within, the, but they all have the ability uh, to, to kill pathogens with whatever it is in their, in their tissues. So um, now I'm working with a fellow, uh, well, with a, with a group, a fellow named... Um, uh, Barney Bishop and a woman named uh, Monique Van Oak at um, uh, in in uh, in Virginia at George Mason University, and uh, and they've developed little tiny they call them bio balls, but they're basically little tiny fatty cells that are that have uh, chemical charges in them, and the these uh, antimicrobial peptides are charged also. So these little bioballs act kind of like magnets that, they, that they'll pick up these antimicrobial peptides and they trap them in these fatty membranes. Uh, and so I send them blood. They process the blood um, down to the components that contain these antimicrobial peptides. And then they, they 
basically just dump a bunch of these nanoparticles in there, let them be in contact for a while. They're swirling around in the plasma, picking up these antimicrobial peptides. Then they can filter those nanoparticles out. So they've basically, um, you know, collected a very large number of these peptides from the plasma. Then they can cause them to cause the particles to release those proteins. So we end up with thousands and thousands from from a small sample of blood. We end up with thousands of different proteins. Uh, And then the problem is you have to isolate those and purify them and sequence them. They're tiny. They're only like 75 amino acids long. That's that's a tiny little protein. Uh, but there are there are hundreds or thousands of these in any blood sample that I sent, different ones, not not just individual proteins, but functionally and structurally different proteins. And the few that we've been able to isolate and sequence and then and then reproduce in the laboratory have all had antimicrobial activity. They'll all kill bacteria. But each one of the ones we've isolated kills a different bacterium. And so we're early in the process here. But but in my mind, it seems like, um, you know, these animals have thousands of these things circulating in their body. Each one is specifically designed to target one pathogen or a group of pathogens. And so no matter what comes at these animals, you know, in the environment, they've got a protein that will take it out. And um, and because of that, they can live in pretty dirty environments. They can have open wounds. You know, these animals are hard on one another. They often amputate limbs from one another, but uh, they can survive all that because they have these really fantastically uh, powerful immune systems. Um, so uh, has there been any like studies for these peptides for application for human medicine at all? So, no, not yet. Um I mentioned before we were doing some work with wound healing. So uh, that actually uh, was part of the, we did the same thing with Komodo dragons. Uh, Komodos, you guys probably know Komodos have a lot of bacteria in their mouths. And, um, uh, and if you've ever watched a Komodo eat, they have really kind of, blood-engorged gums over those sharp teeth they have. So when they're chewing on something, they're constantly cutting their own gums with their teeth. And uh, so they could they could um, easily infect themselves with that bacteria that's in their mouth. So we suspected they had powerful immune uh, systems as well. And so I collected blood from... Uh, uh, our Komodo dragons at St. Augustine Alligator Farm and sent them up there and they identified the same kind of situation in those. 
they had sequenced enough of these proteins that Monique Van Oak began to uh, kind of recognize the functional port parts of the protein. And she took an existing uh, dragon protein and genetically modified it slightly. So it's not quite the same as basically she was modifying it to make it more virulent than it actually was because she understood at that point the effects of the shape of the protein and on how it functioned in in wiping out these bacteria. So we have a, it's actually patented now. It's a, it's a synthetic uh, protein called Dragon One. And that's what we're using on these studies of, of wound healing. So in these lab studies, the, these studies are at the, at the point now of, of using mouse, mouse models, not human models. Uh, so we create a small wound on a mouse. Some of them we just leave as control animals and it just creates a scab and will heal in a, a couple of weeks. Um, some of them we apply an, a regular uh, antibiotic uh, ointment to it like we would if, if we had a, a cut or a sore on our skin. And the others, they just take um, this dragon one protein and just put a drop on it every other day. And, uh, and the mice that they're dripping this protein on heal 40% uh, percent faster than the ones we're applying the antibiotic treatment ointment to and, uh, and faster still than the ones that we're just letting heal on their own. So it seems like uh, because of the antibiotic properties of this protein, it's allowing those wounds to heal much more efficiently than if they were having to also ward off other microbes that, that might be attacking the open wound. So, so that's kind of the state we're at now. We, you know, it takes a long time in any biomedical work to get to the point of human trials. But um, as I said before, originally I never thought that was really where this was going, but now I'm pretty confident in the next 10 years or 15 years or whatever, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, is the reason why uh, all these reptiles have them, evolutionarily speaking, is it because they've just been exposed to so many um, different uh, bacteria and pathogens and so they've evolved stronger immune systems over time or? I don't know. I don't know that you could say that. I mean, mm -hmm. we kind of play up that element. Um, because it, it makes people interested in us learning more about these uh, antibacterial components. I think this is simply um, part of the innate immune system of reptiles. I think this is just an enhanced portion uh, of, you know, their normal immune response to, to uh, pathogens. And um, we just haven't appreciated the, the diversity of the elements in, the, in this um, 
previously. We're beginning to really appreciate the complexity of their immune response. What what makes um, what makes it specifically stronger? Is it like the way it's shaped, and so it fights bacteria better, or like how's how's that work? So I think it's. I mean, all pro. Well, I shouldn't say all. The majority of proteins, the function of a protein is due to its shape. Right. You know, on a, on, a, on a molecular level, that's the way it's interacting with whatever it's, it's, it's uh, affecting, you know, in a, in a cellular sense. So, um, so shape is certainly important. The, the reason these are so uh, effective in my mind is that there's a, a lot of them, and there's a huge diversity of forms. And so they're kind of, uh, their immune system kind of comes pre-programmed to be ready to defend against a very large number of, of pathogens uh, because it's got all these different little tiny proteins in, circulating in their blood uh, that are you know, if one doesn't do it to a particular pathogen, another one will. And um, it just makes them uh, have a, a super powerful immune response. So something I saw, um, it was in a documentary, so it might have been an overstatement, but they were, they were talking about how they were doing Gila Monster research, uh, the venom with uh, diabetes and stuff. Um, and they were talking about how they want to, um, the, the enzyme that helps regulate that insulin, they want to be able to, um, at some point, be able to insert it into humans that have diabetes so they can regulate their own insulin. Is that something that's a possibility you could do with these reptiles is somehow, um, I, don't, I don't know how that would work, like inject humans with that, like those peptides or what? Yeah, so um, that might be possible. I don't think it would be possible to, I mean, I think it might be possible to identify the gene that produces a specific one of these antimicrobial peptides, proteins, and insert it into a, a human cell or some cell. I. I don't think it would be feasible to do that mm. on the scale that the reptiles do. Yeah. Um, because what you're talking about in the case of the Gila monster venom is you're taking a single gene and, and inserting it and then activating it. And uh, if you were trying to do that with all of these antimicrobial peptides, you have to insert yeah. many different genes because it's a different gene producing each one of these. Uh, well, I don't know that entirely. There are also proteins that modify existing proteins, so change their shape. And we don't know how much of that's going on in this case as well. So um, it may be gene combinations that end up producing uh, the proteins that we're actually sequencing now uh, but um yeah that's really interesting stuff you know there we have the ability now to to not only take a, a gene of interest and insert it into a cell and 
and get it into an organism where it can be reproduced. But we can go into the DNA of living cells and modify the DNA sequence in place and correct, um, you know, correct deficiencies, uh, developmental deficiencies and that sort of thing. It's, it's fantastic, um, this DNA revolution that we're in the middle of now. Yeah, well, and going off of that too, so, you know, there's a lot of research going into reptile venom and, and venom in general for medical purposes. Now that the, um, it's kind of being more widely widely accepted that Komodo dragons are, are venomous, has there been any research into their venom? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, again, just using t the typical molecular techniques where we uh, are able to to sequence the molecular structures of these venoms. Actually, almost all lizards are venomous. Um, it's mm. just there's only a few that are not, as it turns out. Um, but most of them, the venom in their saliva is so uh, so weak and 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 so diffuse that it has no real uh, impact on a bite or something like that. We would only recognize that they're venomous by doing these molecular studies and actually amplifying the genes that we're, that we're using to identify venom and being able to tell that they're there. But otherwise, you wouldn't know they were venomous. Um, just by looking at their anatomy or uh, or by being bitten by one of these animals. If you, I mean, Komodos are seriously venomous. If you, if you dissect the jaw of a Komodo up at, above each one of those teeth all around the entire perimeter of the jaw, there's a little venom gland uh, under the, the skin of, of the jaw. So, uh, they they have a, a pretty effective uh, venom ad, apparatus. So why? Well, okay. So like a snake, for instance, they'll have um, like strike induced um, chemosensory searching. So like they'll they'll bite something, it'll run off, and then they'll find it and eat it. Um, with a lot of lizards, you see them like like if it's like a fence lizard or something, and they just grab like an insect. Like, you don't really see, like, um, a behavioral change. Like, they don't act as if they have venom, I guess, is a way to put it. Like, how, um, how does that work? Like, why, why, why don't they, like, um, hunt prey differently? So, I don't know that um, – I don't know. You, you're, you're dragging me into areas that, are, that I'm less familiar with. But yeah. um, <laughs> I don't know that – um, it's known that these, that many of these species, like a fence lizard, for instance, you mentioned, they do have venom proteins in their saliva. I don't know if it's known that the, the, those proteins actually have any effect on the prey or the prey is being killed simply by the mechanical damage that the jaws and teeth are doing to it. So I'm not familiar with that research yeah. enough to, to know that. Uh, it, it could be that, you know, I mean, like 
like many venomous animals, they, they may have venoms that are specifically designed to have a maximal impact on the sorts of prey that they, they feed on. Uh, but I've not heard that. Um, and in the case of Komodos, you know, the idea here is that they inf inflict a wound by grabbing a prey um, and and they they may envenomate it somewhat. They're also it's a dirty bite, so that wound is going to become infected. And so they grab an animal. If they can hold on, they will. But if they can't, they'll let the animal run off, mm -hmm. and it'll it'll succumb to its injuries, uh, or perhaps actually succumb more rapidly because of the com combination of infection and envenomation. And then they're capable of tracking the animal just with their own chemosensory apparatus using their tongue and the vomeronasal organ in their, in their sinuses. So it, it, it's, it's possible that it's more likely um, like a just-in-case type of thing. Like, so, and that may be why the venom's not as strong. Is So they'll, if, if the prey happens to get away... They, they know it'll die soon and they can track it down later. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, Komodo dragons are real scavengers. So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter to them if they're the, if they're why I, the deer died or some other lizard is or some other reason. They're, you know, if they wander upon it, they're going to eat it. And so uh, it makes sense uh, that. If you're trying to struggle with a adult deer, a deer with antlers, you know you probably don't want to hold on to it for too long because it greatly increases your chances of being seriously injured. So you might as well inflict a, a damaging bite and let go and let the thing run off, and and you know you'll catch up to it in a few days and get your meal then. Does so, there Sorry, I was just going to make one more point on it. Um, does the gland, um, does it um, inject the venom directly into the saliva? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no, there aren't any ducts or grooves. Well, there's a duct from the gland through yeah. through the gum, but there's not a not a uh, a channel like in a snake fang or something like that. It's just mixing with the saliva. Or like with 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 uh, Gila monsters, you know. Does that cause any chemical change? Like like for instance, like a, a slow loris, uh, when they mix their saliva with the glands underneath their armpits, it it that's what creates the venom. Is there any kind of chemical change between their saliva and the venom? Not that I'm aware of. Um, they all have, you know, um, uh, create um, hemolytic. Uh, of factors where it breaks down blood cells and yeah. you know causes causes that to spread through the body so the animals uh, bleed out and have organ failure and that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, going back to your research of crocodilians, you mentioned you did a lot of like a uh, research on the social behavior and signaling among crocodilians, mm. um, specifically among alligators, correct? 
Yeah, though I've looked at it in some other species as well, but I've I've spent a lot of time watching alligators and uh, because that's what we got here. And so I've most most of the work I did with social displays with with was with alligators, American alligators. So uh, what were some things you discovered from your research on that behavior? Well, so. Um, there's a lot of interesting social displays in American alligators and in most most crocodilians. You know what you find when you look at uh, social displays in crocodilians is they most of them tend to have the same behavioral components. They just kind of mix and match them in different different ways. And uh, so you know most crocodilians are are pretty vocal animals. They're the most vocal of any uh, of the reptile groups. Alligators uh, vocalize even before they ever break through the eggshell, and they you know they have um, at least nine different distinct vocalizations uh, that they make. Um, and um, hold on one second. I think. Uh, Nate left, and he's the one that's recording it, so. Okay. Sorry, we're going to pause for a second. I think his thing might have disconnected. Still got the record button up top. Well, okay, maybe he's recording on this. Okay. Before he was recording it on a different device, so. Um, well, go ahead and continue, and if, um, okay. if that happens to be the case, we can recap. So, okay. Uh, so, so they're highly vocal animals. Um, alligators in the uh, courtship season will bellow to one another. It's it's quite a, a loud roaring bellow, especially the males. Uh, both males and females bellow, but the males produce a really deep resonant. Uh, roaring vocalization, um, capable of being heard, you know, at least a half mile away, maybe uh, farther than that. Um, just prior to the audible bellow that that male alligators make, they produce a, um, a subsonic or infrasonic um, uh, acoustic effect in their torso which uh, is below our level of hearing. Our uh, human hearing, the lowest frequencies we can hear typically around 20 hertz, and this is about 16 or 17 hertz. But it, it has enough sound energy uh, being released from the body that it causes the water around the animal's torso to, to I call it a water dance. It dances yeah. up like a, like a fountain. And it's a spectacular display. If you're standing near them, you can feel those vibrations passing through the ground and going up your legs and uh, a very powerful sensation. And alligators in the immediate vicinity clearly instantly perceive that, uh, that vocalization. And uh, bellowing is a contagious behavior. So when one animal begins to bellow, other animals in the area will will uh, begin to bellow, so they we call it chorusing. They they have these 
choruses, which are usually in the in the early morning hours, uh, and specifically in April and especially May, which is when the peak courtship behaviors occur. Though they'll continue to bellow throughout their active season, they concentrate more time on bellowing right at the peak of courtship than they do at any other part of the year. So, okay, so bellowing, um, so it has multiple different communication, uh, I guess, functions, but it's mostly functions as for reproductive purposes. So it attracts individuals of the opposite sex. It also has a function of uh, of ultimately repelling animals of the same sex. So a, mm. a bellowing male um, will often attract the attention of a more dominant male, mm. and that and that bellowing animal will get chased out of out of there. But big dominant males don't like subordinate males bellowing near them. And so it tends to drive those animals away from the from the deep water that the males are, are courting females in. Um, but it also, you know, is a means of communicating just location within the population, within the habitat, I should say. They have another social display that they use called a head slap or a jaw clap uh, where like bellowing they bring their head up out of the water their tail comes up as a counterbalance to kind of allow them to hold that big heavy head out of the water they remain relatively still for 16 or 17 seconds and then just startlingly rapidly they slap their lower jaw against the surface of the water and they clap their upper jaw shut they may growl at that time. They may produce that water dance infrasound at that time. Um, if they're in shallow enough water, they'll often stiffen their legs and arch their back so that their body comes rising up out of the water and they'll start throwing water with their tail in every direction, just doing everything they can to be as conspicuous as possible. That's just an advertisement display, just making themselves known. <coughs> I'm sorry. Making themselves known to the other animals in the area. So um, the, is there, um, you were saying how like the dominant males, they're bellowing the ward off um, sub, more subordinate males. Is that, um, how do the how do the subordinate males um, recognize that as a dominant male from the bellow? No, they don't recognize the bellow of a dominant. Well, they may because there is information in the bellow that allows them to, you know, have some understanding of the size of the animal that's bellowing. But mm -hmm. but that's not the important part. The important part is that dominant males can bellow whenever they wish. Subordinate males, if they bellow, they run the risk of a dominant male physically attacking them. Uh, so uh, dominant males very commonly will charge a subordinate. They don't commonly actually attack them, but they often will come charging through the water, you know, kind of porpoising up out of the water with their head and neck up out of the water and their mouth slightly open. And they'll come over near the animal and then stop and present 
laterally to the animal and make themselves look as big as possible. If the other animal doesn't, um, you know, leave the area, those threat displays may turn into actual attacks where they'll charge and and they won't stop and display. They'll actually dive and ram into them and bite them. That's, um, that's no longer part of the social display. That's just yeah. outright <laughs> aggression. So uh, is there any sort of like a social sign that the subordinate will show that they're submitting to the dominant male, you know, like kind of a way to say, please don't kill me, I guess. So, <laughs> so there are, um, alligators, uh, don't show submission very, uh, discreetly. Uh, they, they will stay low and low in the water and move slowly, but in many other crocodilians, the, the true crocodiles have real, uh, displays of submission that subordinate males and females uh, both use. And th these are called snout lifts, where the animal lifts its head up out of the water like this anytime the dominant animal comes near it. So a patrolling male will go by and a female will lift her head up like this. They'll do it anytime an animal approaches the female. Males will do it if they're subordinate to a male. Um, um, it's it's a very overt sign. Uh, alligators don't really do that, but they they do have subtle visual cues that uh, that make it less likely for them to to be attacked by a dominant male. Um, something I've noticed from working with crocodile uh, alligators. And I'm sorry if the guys already went over this when I was disconnected, but sometimes I notice that sometimes they'll wiggle the very end of the tail a lot in the water right before <laughs> they start like charging another one or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a sign of agitation. Uh, okay. That's basically a pissed off alligator. Um, <laughs> they just, just like wiggle cats. the very end of their tail. Yeah. It's kind of comical to see just the very end of their tail thrashing around. Yeah. I've worked, I haven't done it lately, but I've worked with a couple of golf courses in South Florida that are, are very natural areas and they're meant to be kind of wildlife sanctuaries. And so they, they don't want to get rid of alligators, but they also don't want the people who bought a gazillion dollar home getting bitten by an alligator. So I've worked with them on trying to design the golf courses so that alligators and the people can kind of coexist in a in a in a safer way. But I've also worked with the grounds crews in these golf courses to to basically be able to read the body language of alligators because those are the guys that are out there first thing in the morning. They're the ones that are seeing the gators before the guests ever get on the course. They're the ones that can decide if there's a gator that's a problem or it's just a, a gator that's, that's uh, you know, moving through the area. And, um, and so I've shown them a number of body postures, but I also mentioned that business of the tip of the tail. Um, 
wagging back and forth as an indication of an animal that's pretty agitated. So um, gator skin's pretty uh, tough and they're pretty resilient creatures. And as you said, they have strong immune systems. Does, however, like um, when they, uh, the grounds crew works on the golf course, like when they do their, whatever they're spraying or whatever, does that affect gators at all? Or can that affect gators at all? Oh, you mean if they're spraying like herbicides or fertilizer? Yeah, or just whatever, whatever they do agriculturally or Yeah, so it can. Um, I mean, we've never discussed that when I was working with these golf course guys. But we do know that alligators are, are really a sentinel animal, a sentinel species for, for uh, toxic pollutants in waterways. Um, we've had a number of, of incidents in Florida here where agricultural chemicals have, have spilled. Not, not just runoff of normal agricultural processes, but actual large-scale spills. And so we've been able to see the impact on alligator populations from that, So, uh, which, which tends to be reproductive dysfunction or developmental um, um, aberrations uh, from, from the chemicals. And so... Um, we've had a few places in Florida here where alligator populations were um, pretty severely affected for a, a period of years, uh, and then slowly that dissipates. And there's so there been there has been a lot of effort on the part of the state in some of these best known cases to go in and and try to eliminate as much of the chemicals as possible, which is not easy because. At that point, it's down in the detritus in the bottom of the lakes, and you know it's part of the food chain, and it's impacting fish and frogs and turtles and everything else at that point. But um, yeah, alligators are impacted by that, but they're they're some of the first species that 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 we can really tell something's going on in the ecosystem, and and so we can respond to it. Is there a way to tell just by, um, so you mentioned like reproductive issues. Is there a way to tell like just if you were to like physically see a gator or is it mainly just monitoring that kind of the reproductive aspect? So it depends what chemicals you're talking about, but generally there's not a physical indication on the part of the alligator. Um, there, there are physical indications on, on hatchling alligators that have been exposed mm -hmm. to that chemical. Uh, and there's uh, and there's also uh, a lot of nest failure or hatching failure in those populations. That's one of the things uh, that we notice uh, first off when these conditions have first started. Interesting. So you, um, you think we need to stop again? Because he's dropped off again. Yeah. No, I think it should be fine because he said it backs up. I guess it records and backs up to it, so... Oh, oh, there he is. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> This thing on my end is driving me crazy. Um, so the egg, the eggshells of gators, are they... Um, 
relative to other eggshells, are they pretty um, resilient or mm. if that makes sense? Yeah. So, you know, back in the, in the seventies and, um, th th there was um, a chemical called DDT that yeah. resulted in the thinning or complete loss of shells from birds, especially seabirds. Yeah. Um, alligators that are exposed to those chemicals don't—they—they they don't lose any shell. I don't even think the shell is necessarily any thinner than it is normally. Um, but that doesn't mean the embryo isn't impacted by the chemical because it yeah. does it does go through the shell into the interior. Interesting. So uh, you mentioned that uh, baby alligators are known to uh, vocalize before they even hatch out of the egg. Are they like communicating with their mothers before that, or and, like I know you know crocodilians are really closely related to birds. Yeah, and I know that birds will like uh, learn each other, learn their babies' uh, calls before they even hatch. Has that been observed in alligators at all? Yeah, absolutely. So it, they're communicating with their nest mates, um, but uh, that that does happen. So that they're kind of course synchronizing when they're all going to get out and get going. Uh, but um, more importantly, they're communicating with the mother. And the mother will be attracted by those calls and she'll hang around near the nest. She'll often uh, wait until night. But if you watch a gator, a uh, female gator come up on a nest when the babies are vocalizing inside, they're clearly listening. I mean, they actually walk up and turn their head and put their ear against it, you, you know, like, like you or I might do. Um, and um, and the more vocalization there is, the more stimulated the female is to start tearing into the nest and helping the babies out of the nest and out of the eggs. Um, so going back to the um, agricultural runoff, so I, I was actually talking to someone today and she was talking about how agricultural runoff has um, hurt the seagrass beds and it's um, hurt the manatee populations and stuff. Um, is there, and this may not be your particular area of expertise, but do you know of, of anything that they have, what, what kind of stuff have they tried implementing to help prevent like agricultural runoff and that kind of stuff affecting gators and manatees and anything else? Well, this is a big problem in Florida, especially in, uh, in North Florida where I live, because we have more springs in this part of the, of the world than any place else. The largest spring in the world is just maybe 50 miles from where I live. Um, and the quality of the water coming out of the, these deep ground aquifers is impacted by, by these uh, uh, nutrients that are being leached out of septic tanks and uh, the chemicals that uh, we're applying to lawns and that sort of thing. Um, the problem with the manatees is a pretty current one. Uh, just this year, we've lost almost a thousand manatees. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and there are not that many manatees in Florida. Uh, there's only a few thousand of them. And uh, they're, they're basically starving to death because 
of um, of the algal blooms that are wiping out the seagrasses that they feed on in the winter months. And um, uh, they just aren't able to get enough nutrients in those areas. So, you know, there, there are pushes always to try to improve water quality in, in Florida. But uh, so many of the people here, it's a sandy environment, you know, so septic tank drain fields uh, just percolate through the soil. And um, and then we have a lot of agricultural lands as well in Florida, the growing sod and tomatoes and cut flowers and all that sort of stuff. And they're applying chemicals to all of those. So there's always the state working to try to limit the volumes of fertilizers and insecticides and pesticides, other pesticides that are being used, but um, it's, a, it's a tough battle here. There's every day, there's a thousand more people living in this state. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hard battle to try to, to get any progress on. Especially down, I live in South Florida. And um, apparently, since COVID, it's like, practically doubled down here. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Matt, you have any other questions? Um, I think I'm questioned out. <laughs> so, I think that's probably a good spot to end unless you have anything else you wanted to say. No, I think that's great. I think we've covered a lot of different areas tonight. Yeah. Well, uh, Thank you, Dr. Ken, uh, Dr. White, for coming on to the show. Okay. Enjoyed meeting you guys and talking with you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. We'll see Bye -bye. you. Okay. Bye-bye.